0: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one lit crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn
1: signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Iway with Jamila Jamil. I hope you're well, I'm really excited because I've got a mate on. The podcast today, and uh, I, I don't have a lot of friends in this business because uh, I find people in this business really scary <laughs> and a bit off-putting. Sometimes, if I'm being honest, they probably also find me off-putting. So I'm not saying that in a judgy way, but it's just a bit. Int- people are a bit intense, and and we have different values. And dreams. And so it's very rare that I meet someone who I actually really connect with, who doesn't want anything from me. I don't want anything from them. We just, they give me that feeling of having someone, you know, when you're at 11 and it's your first day of secondary school and you meet someone, you're like, great, I can sit next to you at lunch. Uh, That's the feeling that this person gave me from the very first time that I met them and basically stalked them to become my friend. And it's been so cool to watch them go from performing to eight people in a tiny, damp like cellar in Edinburgh, to now having a hit show on Netflix that is so critically acclaimed and so beloved that covers so many important subjects that we never get to see in a comedy series. Uh, hugely personal stories about addiction, about sexuality. It's the first time we ever get to see uh, sex between two women um as they were identifying in that series and we get to see strap-ons and we get to see uh all of the different real facets of someone discovering their sexuality it's so funny it's so full of heart Lisa fucking Goodrose in it which is obscene. Uh, It's obscene that my mate has written a thing that is so good that Lisa Kudrow, who never does anything, has agreed to be in it. I really want you to see the show. It's called Feel Good and it's on Netflix. I watched it three times during the pandemic. I'm not saying this just because this person is my friend. I'm genuinely just so obsessed with this show. And the trailer just came out for season two, which is kind of come out on June 4th. And it is so... It looks so brilliant. I cannot wait to see it. And I want to talk to you all about it when it does come out, because I'm hoping I can be a part of helping you discover Mae Martin. Such a great stand-up, one of the greatest voices in comedy that we have. And and just such a human being, someone who's so vulnerable in their art and who recently came out uh, as non-binary and on an ongoing journey with their gender. And it's... It's just helped so many people feel safer to talk about their gender and their gender dysphoria. And so that's one of the things that we cover in this episode. A lot of gender dysphoria. We talk a little bit about uh, love. We talk about addiction. We talk about their deep love of Bette Midler and childhood fantasies about her. We talk about both getting to work with Lisa Kudrow. We talk about our friendship and how we met and our dynamic. And we really just go everywhere with each other may is such an open person and i'm so lucky to have had them on this podcast and to be able to celebrate them with you and so that's exactly what i'm doing right now please enjoy an hour of the most delightful unassuming intelligent and and just wondrous fairy of a human being that is may martin Martin I think you're one of the most talented stand-up comics of all time hello welcome to I Way how are you
3: that's (laughs) a wild thing to say um
2: how are you thanks so much for having me I uh I'm thrilled I'm honored uh even though you're my friend and also it's really (laughs) nice to see your face because it's been such a long time you look great thank you so do you I can't believe that we're finally doing this this is I know I feel like a long time coming also, specifically, it's been really hard to book you because you're so you're so busy. You're writing shows, you're you're making TV shows, you're acting in them as well as creating them. You're uh, you're just God. It's such. It's such a long time ago that we first met and so much has happened in both of our lives, especially your life, I would say. Uh, I remember No, what first- are you talking about? What, no, what no. do you mean- <laughs> <laughs>
3: no.
2: I mean, but- you're like a global
3: superstar. I, I love, I like, I'm so, this sounds always condescending when people say they're proud, but I'm just so proud and impressed by everything that you're doing. And it's just been amazing watching you stay yourself and be bizarre and funny and it's great.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I feel extremely proud of you in an equal, non-condescending way I uh I remember the first time I saw you you were performing at the Fringe Festival and that was in Edinburgh and you had had success in other countries before uh, especially like Canada your your home country but you were performing in a room of truly like eight people there were eight people in the audience Uh, is that because that's what Edinburgh is like, you know, you find these, these huge auditoriums, then you also find these tiny rooms or cupboards that you find people doing some of the most amazing comedy you've ever seen in. And I in, I instantly fell in love with you. It, it, Thank was, you. In, it was immediate love. And then I think I stalked you basically after the show and asked you for I, your number. I mean, I really specifically remember that show
3: and that it, it was in a venue that was I mean, damp is such an understatement. Like it was actually, it was actually wet. Like the walls had water coming down them. There were mice and um yeah, just seven or eight people. And then, yeah, you waited outside and then pursued my friendship and I gratefully accepted.
2: Yeah, well, and that led to, that led to a really lovely friendship in a time where I felt so new in this industry. And I think you felt quite new as well, especially in the UK. Definitely. And we were able to be a kind of, um, A sane. I don't know why the word rod is coming to my mind. Let's get rid of of the word rod. Uh, We were rods, but you, yeah, you were a safe place for me where we could have really honest conversations about this industry, about our lives, about our love life. So much complaining to each other about about our our very complicated love lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you're always going to be someone I remember so fondly as like a, a, just a shining light of, of safety and calm and no judgment, even though you were so frantically anxious. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so was I. Um, but yeah, but you're, you're the- one of my favorite memories of the beginning of my career. Thank you. That, I mean,
3: ditto. And yeah, it's rare that I'm described as calming because my energy is <laughs> that of some kind of meerkat, but, yeah. um, maybe that, maybe that's why it's coming. Cause we had a similar energy at the time and it was like, Oh God, I'm, I'm not insane. Yeah.
2: Um, I, uh, I want to know how you've been, how has your, uh, <laughs> how has, have you been your whole life? Um, no, well- I don't know. First of all, I want to know how you've been during the last year. I know that everyone's kind of pandemic fatigued, but I would like to know how you've been.
3: Yeah. I mean, up and down, I think, uh, I heard a good I don't know if you saw, it was, I think a Miranda July quote where she Mm -hmm. said, being asked how you are in the pandemic is like being asked what falling's like while you're still falling. Cause it's like, I'm, I haven't processed it yet. It's been so mad, but, um, yeah, I was lucky to make the second season of my show in lockdown. So that kind of saved me from serious convalescence and just lying around spiraling and, you know, apocalyptic
2: doom spirals hundred yeah. percent. And are these <laughs> but, are these new spirals or were these old spirals that were resurfacing? They were they were old ones
3: that were due to resurface, I think. And and then when everything's stripped away and all the distractions and you know, I'm far from family and friends in Canada and stuff. And I think having the show come out at the start of lockdown, um, my show feel good.
2: And then by the yeah, way, I'm, anyone who hasn't seen it, you have to go and see it. It's one of my favorite comedies that's on the TV. And it, it, I watched it like three times during lockdown because it was so funny and so good. Um, Go on, Thanks. sorry.
3: Uh, no, just that, yeah, it, it's, I can't wait to go back to Canada, basically, to kind of process the past year with people who've known me forever, you know?
2: How would you say your relationship with your mental health has been throughout the course of your life? Considering this is a mental health podcast, I just like to go in with something light like that. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Just ease you in. You know... I don't know if
3: you feel this way, but I wish that growing up I'd had the language around it and, and that these conversations were being had. Cause it, it was, yeah, only in my twenties that I heard things like anxiety and, uh, yeah, terms that, that made a lot of sense to me. I mean, I, I had a very tumultuous adolescence, so that was, I guess you'd, I'd classify that as a bad mental health time. I was really, mm-hmm. um, a really sort of bizarre, uh, addict in my teens and, really into drugs. And then, yeah, I feel, I think my thirties are going to be, are going to be my decade. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I feel very grounded now. And, uh, I get, I think I needed a lot of distance from, from that time to kind of wrap my head around it. And I think I'm getting there.
2: Do you think you have identified where some of the causes of, you know, you've struggled with anxiety? Would you say you've struggled with depression? Sure. Yeah. 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 Why not? Yeah, I would. <laughs> I, uh,
3: I mean, the main thing has been this kind of uh, obsessive thinking and, and anxiety that's manifested as addictive behavior. I think that's been the ma- the biggest hurdle, and then. Now that I've sort of got a handle on that, then I feel the the old depression creeping in. You know,
2: mm-hmm. can we? <laughs> I'm <laughs> this- only referring to it as depression from yeah. now on. <laughs> yeah, you know, that makes cash- feel so much better. <laughs> <laughs> a cash um, bout of depression. Do you know where the addiction and the depression <laughs> came from? Came where it from? stemmed from? I don't
3: know. I think that's a lifelong process of inquiry, isn't it? Yeah, compassionate self inquiry. I I don't. No. And then some days I think, does it really matter? And shouldn't I just be sort of proactively th- taking it day by day? Sometimes it feels good to delve into the past. And um, it's interesting when your work is so tied up in self exploration. I don't mm-hmm. know. I think for a long time I thought that just doing stand up about <laughs> my problems was as good as therapy. And it's so not. No. It's like, <laughs> No, it's like a one-sided monologue where no one's challenging you, and you're just kind of wallowing, you know, and and making light of things that maybe you don't feel that light about.
2: So, yeah, therapy's been good. Do you know how old you were when you first started to feel uncomfortable? Uncomfortable. In
3: well, there's different ways. I mean, puberty. I think
2: was max. Yeah.
3: I I think. I don't know how anyone gets through puberty. I think it's wild. Like Mm -hmm. the world goes from being kind of knowable and understandable. Like we had Encyclopedia Britannica in my house and I kind of, it was like all the answers I needed were either there or in my parents' brains. (laughs) And then you hit puberty and you're like, wait, I don't know what anyone's talking about. And I don't know what this world is and what I'm supposed to be in it. So that probably puberty and... Since I was a kid, I think I had I had sort of gender stuff going on and but that didn't I was lucky I had really liberal parents who let me be myself. So I didn't feel sort of too stressed about that. My parents were definitely cool about very open about sex and sexuality and and things like that. I mean, they're still learning, too, but that was one thing that I was really lucky just like that basic thing of I didn't grow up hearing them say homophobic things in the Mm -hmm. house most people hear their parents because it's a generational thing mostly saying bad things and you soak them up and uh I'm just lucky I didn't so that wasn't an issue other things were issues drugs (laughs) things like that but I like the fact um, that you
2: talk about your addictive behavior starting with Bette Midler yeah yeah that was
3: I, who was your bet Midler, like as a child I, I mean she consumed my life
2: my my bet Midler was Tom Hanks oh wow, Tom That's... Hanks was my bet midler, but you know I was uh I was a little bit fickle I was a little bit of a mm. I was, yeah I, I couldn't fan. just pick one like i had I had Whoopi Goldberg and Tom Hanks and probably. Hugh Grant and I don't yeah. know how I feel about that now but those are like my 3 pinups that were on my wall I was in love with and obsessed with and wanted to be and wanted to meet them all yeah. and uh and I've 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 met kind of all three, only two and a half really. I've met Tom, he was fantastic in real life. Met Whoopi, she was fantastic in real life. And then I didn't really meet Hugh Grant, but I was hired <laughs> to do. De- do you remember when I was a DJ back in Vividly. the day? Yeah, yeah. So I was hired to DJ on a golf course. No. Where only Hugh Grant was <laughs> playing golf. Oh my God. It was the single and I took the job because I heard he was going to be there. But the fucking problem is that when you're DJing in a golf course, they just keep moving further and further away from you every time they do well. So he just became this little (laughs) Hugh Grant, which just a dot to me by the end of the day. So I never got to meet him, but I did DJ extremely inappropriate um, and misogynistic uh, 90s rap and hip hop. Uh, for him on a on a predominantly elf, empty golf course. Oh my so. God.
3: I wonder if like when the wind changed, you just caught a whiff of his cologne from like a mile away. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, those are my bet middlers. Um, talk to me about your bet midler addiction, please.
3: Well, I just think that was the beginnings of, I, I guess the official definition of an addiction is when you're you're doing something compulsively despite it having negative consequences in your day-to-day life and you can't stop. <laughs> so I guess, cause most things, I mean, we all self-soothe with various things, but if, if it's actually having negative consequences, then that, and, and Bette Midler was really like, I, I was doing badly in school cause I was just thinking about her all the time. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> doing, I'd have like a, you know, a French project to do and I'd find a way to connect it to her. It was really, yeah. My, my parents had to confiscate all my, Bette Midler CDs because I was just playing them on the house and repeat. Oh and, my
2: God. Uh, oh my God. I didn't realize it was this intense.
3: Yeah. But, I mean, I'm, I am over it, but yeah. Are you though? Are you ever really
2: <laughs> over it? <laughs> Have you ever met Bette Midler?
3: Never. And I I did a stand up special where I did talk about kind of an intense sexual fantasy about her. And I'm sorry,
2: what was the <laughs> intense sexual fantasy?
3: Oh, it was just, you know, Hocus Pocus, that movie. Yes, I do. So when I was about six, I mean, it wasn't even a it wasn't even a sexual because I was six, but it was just a sort of vibey dream where I was naked and all the, those three witches had kidnapped me. That, and, so I, and I would always want to have that dream. So I'd like rush to bed trying to have that dream. Anyway, so I, I think a lot of people <laughs> tweeted that at her and I hope she hasn't seen it. I haven't had any feedback from her about
2: oh i hope she has and if i ever meet her i'm I'm going to immediately direct her to anything i can find (laughs) i would die i would die (laughs) if i ever get her on this podcast would you also come on and be a third guest I would
3: just lurk and the I'll, I'll just mute myself and lurk.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I am, um, when you were talking about sexuality, you actually brought her up where you were like, I'm a big advocate of the idea, that ambiguity of the idea of not knowing who you are, who you love, where to put your hands when you sleep or why Bette Midler stirred such longing in a six-year-old Canadian child. Is <laughs> <It's> fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that yeah. so intensely.
3: I think there's got to be more nuance and ambiguity in, in sexuality. For I agree. Sure.
2: And I also love what you've been talking about regarding sexuality over the last couple of years. I mean, you've even written a book about it, uh, but talking about how so many of us, I think it's something like 40%, did you say, of of young people don't even subscribe to a uh, sexuality necessarily? Yeah, to
3: labels in that way. Yeah. So I, I think the next generation's coming up are, you know, I think this is a a wave that is not going to be diverted anytime soon. I think of people rejecting those kind of quite narrow definitions and boundaries, but I mean, we're in a tricky transitional time, I think, because those labels I think are still important in some way to communicate and to fight for still tenuous rights and things like that. So you Mm -hmm. can't, it it feels a little bit sort of naive to be like, we're all just human beings, but I do hope we're moving that way because it is, It is wild and I've always felt that way. Like I there's no particular label that I particularly identify with.
2: A hundred percent. I feel exactly the same way. And I uh I agree with you in that and these aren't your exact words, but essentially if we could all just start at a blur, if we could all just start at an I don't know, it would remove the fear of having to come out. It would remove The persecution. It would remove so much of the bigotry and misunderstanding, or trying to understand, trying to figure each other out, trying to put each other in boxes. If we could all just start at the gray area and be allowed to continue there, then our lives would be so much freer. I was so, I I was so consumed with trying to hide my sexuality for so much of my life, being South Asian and then also being in an industry where I just felt as though I would then just be pigeonholed entirely if I came yeah. out about my sexuality at all. It was such a painful part of growing up. And I uh, I can't believe it took me till I was 34 to actually publicly I know. own that it and went really well I don't know if you saw but it went really, <laughs>
3: went really well. <laughs> I thought it was awesome and I think it's oh my god the amount of time though that people waste um you know worry, worrying about uh, you, you know who who they're who they want to love and be attracted to. It's insane. It's a, and we, the fact that we just assume everyone's straight, that's our baseline with babies that are just born. You kind of assume they're straight. And then mm-hmm. if they're not, they have, they have to tell you the onus is on them to go actually, you know, that's, that's crazy. And um yeah, I think I read a good definition of bisexuality the other day that was like, it's recognizing within yourself the potential to be attracted to more than one gender, not necessarily at the same time and not necessarily to the same degree I feel like loads of people fit into that category and a hundred percent so many people, but there's a real fear around the label of it. There's still tons of biphobia and, you know, from both within the community and, and out of it. And it's just all a big mess. And I just wish we could all be super horny and get with each other, you know,
2: <laughs> I, I fully support that movement. And if that's yeah. the cult that you want to start, I'll join. Um, okay. You also have brought up so many interesting facts, things that I'd never considered, and also just so much about the history of of gender fluidity, the history of uh, sexuality being something that we didn't uh, legalise or make, whatever, criminalise or legalise, mm. etc. Um, you brought up this fantastic point around hypocrisy where you said in 2018 india decriminalized homosexuality and we celebrated it over here meaning england but england went into india and criminalized homosexuality in 1856
3: yeah yeah that blew my mind i, I read that, that blew and my mind. I,
2: I didn't know that and I i'm know, from and there
3: i know and i and, and i remember all the British press was kind of smug being like, oh, well done, India, you finally legalized it, but it's, you know, it took you long enough. And it's like, that's such gaslighting because we literally went into India and and criminalized it. And that's true all over the world in so many cultures, this kind of Western colonialism that has just bulldozed over all of these gender variances and ancient, you know, tons of cultures that recognize
2: multiple genders and you came out recently as non-binary in a more public sense. And you did that just before, I guess it was your, you were about to do a big promotion run. And yeah. you didn't want to be misgendered or yeah, labelled in a fresh. certain way. Yeah, this, this is, is very, very fresh. <laughs> this is hot yeah, off the
3: press. Hot um, off the
2: press. Would you feel comfortable about talking to me about just what was the decision behind speaking out about it now?
3: I think...
2: um it was because so many
3: people asked me about it, and people either, um, well, okay, I think it was that my whole life that I can ever remember, I've I've not had the language to express how I was feeling because I I didn't I didn't really feel like a boy, but I definitely would cringe every time someone would refer to me as a girl, and I was I've always been very androgynous, and I it, it felt like much more than just being for example, like a sort of masculine presenting woman and that everything that's ever been written about me is sort of referred to me in that way. And I just haven't had the language for it. And then I've been reading and learning more and experiencing increasingly as I get older, this kind of acute gender dysphoria where I, I feel... Yeah, I've been struggling with it a bit. So then,
2: can I ask you? But for anyone out there who doesn't know, there might be a, a maybe a kid who's just picked up this podcast for the first time. Would you explain what you understand gender dysphoria to be?
3: Yeah, for me, I think, like for instance, I've just had laser eye surgery, so okay. I'm I'm very uh, most people walking around not aware of their eyeballs in their head. I'm constantly aware of my eyeballs at the moment. They feel weird in my head. They're itchy. And that's how I feel about gender, kind of. I'm aware of it constantly. And it's like having something stuck in your shoe or like, you know, and and we live in such a gendered world where I go out of the house in the morning, I buy my coffee. They're like, thank you, ma'am. Or thank you, sir. Like everyone's obsessed with constantly. It's such a sort of identifier. And Mm -hmm. um, these categories are still so, so pronounced and so I I'm constantly bumping up against it and feeling like just kind of a square peg in a round hole kind of, so that that's kind of how I would explain it. So, you know, yeah, certain like pictures of myself and things like that. And also being in this industry and having things written about you all the time or being, yeah, it was just starting to feel like this is not, a, uh, uh, yeah, I haven't, uh, it's not how I feel. So mm-hmm. then I think through writing feel good and writing, an autobiographical story about someone that is going through that, it kind of forced me to be like, all right, well, what am I going to do about it? Because I hadn't, I, I was writing the second series during lockdown, having all these feelings. And it was the first time that I was like, I, I definitely am non-binary. That's definitely a thing. And, and that might change in, in the future. I might feel like I'm, you know, want to go further in that direction or I'm mm-hmm. on a different point in that spectrum. But it definitely has never felt right to be... To say that I'm a woman, but I don't know. I haven't even talked to my parents about that yet. I don't know if I will. I think they'll read some article and it'll
2: be nice and fine. I think they're big fans of this podcast. So that oh, maybe shit. they're just finding out right this second. Um, you talk about oh. the fact that wearing a binder and you actually wear a binder in Feel Good. And I found that very revolutionary to see that in a TV yeah. show and the use of binders and strap-ons and all of these things that feel very hidden normally in comedy, even though they're such a normal part of so many people's lives. Uh, and I, I mean, strap-ons people need to get into, I mean,
3: straight women need to get into wearing strap-ons with their boyfriends. Like yeah. they're fun. Oh, People need to get more into strap-ons because uh, it's happening, you know? Yeah, strap-ons are happening.
2: You heard it. Strap on <laughs> <laughs> um, love a strap-on. Can't get can't get pregnant from a strap-on. Yeah. Exactly. Bloody brilliant. Bloody brilliant if that's something you're trying to avoid in your life. Yeah. Um, I think that's I think that's excellent. And I also love you so much for just putting all of these things around sexuality and around sex and using using the sex toys and using the the binder. Will you explain what a binder is?
3: I just got into them. I mean they're it's just a very tight vest, basically. Uh and I just found this company and I I'd, I'd read about people using them and it just is a
2: a useful it sort of flattens that it flattens the chest to kind of yeah. to remove I guess mostly the breast yeah section Ex- to yeah kind exactly of reduce the breast section uh, in particular yeah. to give you more of a I guess a neutral shape.
3: Yeah, and a lot of people Feel you know, th- th- differently on any given day about uh, about how how they're feeling in their body and stuff, and also your body can change hormonally throughout the month and stuff. So it's just a, a useful thing if you don't want to if you're feeling bad and you don't want to have you know jump into surgery or something. Yeah, so I, I think a lot of people use them. I don't know if I I, I haven't been using it very much to be honest, but uh, doing photo shoots and stuff, I find it helpful.
2: Yeah, you wore one recently in a photo shoot where you're not wearing it under anything. You're just wearing it and you were promoting the company that make them. And this was around the same time that you were announcing the fact that you are non-binary. And again, I just find it fucking, I know it's not revolutionary and I don't mean to turn you into the sort of Greta Thunberg of uh, non-binary people. I know that, that they are not a monolith and you are not their spokesperson now and you're still figuring this out you know, we were talking earlier about being proud of each other, but I feel so incredibly proud of you because as an anxious and sometimes self-conscious person, I know how massive that was for you to do and for you to announce, even though you weren't talking about it with any kind of certainty or in perpetuity. I really fucking admire it because it meant so much to so many people when you did Uh, it.
3: That's really nice. I think part of it too is I didn't want to have to have a million little conversations with even friends of mine I haven't spoken to about it and stuff. So I thought I'll just put it out there. And then, yeah, the response was so positive on Instagram. And then I did the bad thing of, <laughs> of Googling it online and reading the comment sections on like the Sun newspaper. And that was no good.
2: Um, that's weird because normally it's full of really educated, thoughtful people who just yeah. want the best for everyone. That's what and I thought. You didn't name search yourself on Twitter, did you, May? Yeah. 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 I did. Yeah. Oh, I see. <laughs> Maximum I... self-harm. You did that in a pandemic on your own.
3: <laughs> yeah. But how can people not, how can you resist that?
2: Name searching is something that any you'd, anyone would do it because we're all just kids. We're yeah. all just massive kids with big bills who are still at school and nothing feels more like school than Twitter. Oh my God. Yeah. I got to get off it. I
3: actually, I, my phone was stolen the other day, like ripped out of my hand by a guy on a motorcycle. Shit. Yeah. It was so stressful, but quite cool as well. Like he was, he was quite cool. I thought in a way, (laughs) I mean, I know, I know it was bad, but it was just so smooth. It was one clean movement. And, um, anyway, so then I ran to the phone shop and just in total phone withdrawal right away. And then I got sold a, a like a phone watch now. So I'm going to bring that out because it doesn't have social media on it. So I'm going to just leave the house with the watch, leave my phone at home. I think that'll be good for me.
2: Yeah. I think that would be great for you. <laughs> only yes. you, only you would somehow like find a way to, and I'm not saying you did this, but make yourself feel inferior to the man that just robbed you and be like, Oh, that was so cool. What, like, is it bad slick. if I say I kind of fancied him?
3: Was- no. <laughs> I mean, because he wasn't, he wasn't violent. He just snatched the phone really smoothly and he'd ridden his motorcycle up onto the pavement, like on the sidewalk beside me, which, come on, that's James Wait, Spott. so he
2: did it all by himself? Yeah, he
3: was on a motorcycle and he just rode by me and whoop, out of my hand. That is, that is quite sexy.
2: It that is hugely problematic <laughs> of both of us right now too, encourage yeah, that behaviour. I I know. I don't condone that. The, it's the agility of it. It's very Angelina Jolie. It is. I feel like Angelina could do that and I'd be absolutely fine with it. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash iWay today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash
1: iWay. Just in and so good. Thousands of summer deals at your Nordstrom Rack store. Save up to 60% on new arrivals from Vince, Rag and Bone, Adidas, Joe's, Marc Jacobs, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. But hurry for first dibs. Get your summer favorites up to 60% off at Nordstrom Rack today. Great brands, great prices. That's why you rack.
0: You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time.
2: knocked my fucking socks off i didn't know that you get asked about your gender in the fucking toilets what how did that conversation walk me through that conversation it's angry
3: middle-aged white women and they're saying um that they're saying uh this is the women's toilet you shouldn't be in here and you know you're you're a a man and things like that but it's it's happened so much more recently i think because of the awful, like fraught conversation around trans women using bathrooms. And so, yeah, so I've noticed a real upswing in people challenging me in, in in bathrooms. So yeah, it's annoying. I went to a pub in, this is years ago now, but in Islington in London. And in the course of like 15 minutes, I, I arrived and um I went to the toilet and this group, this hen party came in, like a bachelorette party and they were wasted. And um they were like, they were like harassing me, and then I went to the toilet, and they were like chanting "dyke" at me through the toilet wall. Then oh I come my out. God. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but then wait, but this is not like a sob story. It is just quite funny because I then left, and I'm sitting next to my friend Birdie, uh, who's a very nice boy, and he sort of had his arm around me, and and because uh, I was feeling stressed by these women, and then as soon as he puts his arm around me, this guy walks by and goes "faggots." I was <laughs> like, I literally, <laughs> I've been here. <laughs> I've been here 15 minutes and I've been called a dyke and a faggot. And it's literally, yeah. So I just hope by being like, I'm this, I'm non-binary. It just other people can be less confused about it and stressed out. (laughs) You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I do. I mean, I almost feel guilty even talking to you about it right now because you must be so exhausted from thinking about it your entire life and then having to talk about it and writing about it and doing stand-up about it and then putting it into your show. But the reason I guess I want to is just because I think so many people still feel so stuck and still feel so lost. And because there is this rise in transphobia, in in every kind of possible bigotry regarding sexuality and gender, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's deliberately... On the rise in order to push down this this wave they can see of increasing young people starting to realize their true identity the sooner we all divorce these labels yeah the better do you find comedy uh has been a really helpful way for you to help understand yourself just as a human being as a way to kind of figure that out and and find a way to make it easily ingestible to other people
3: yeah i love i love comedy i really miss I've missed doing stand-up this year because I think it helps me crystallize my thoughts and opinions and things like that.
2: Um, yeah, absolutely. I think it's been a lifeline. Will you talk to me about how you first got into it? Cause I love this story so much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
3: I was just a, always obsessed with Jim Carrey, obsessed yeah. with, uh, Ace Ventura. Same. Um, yeah. And then, um, <laughs> when I was about 11, I got taken to a standup comedy club and I was dressed in a suede waistcoat and a bow tie. And, uh, I sat in the front row and every comedian that came out was like referencing the fact that there was a child in the front row and making fun of me. I was loving it. And then the headliner came up and he got me up on stage and he made me sit on his lap and be his ventriloquist dummy. But he thought I was a boy. So he was making me say all these like filthy things about Pamela Anderson. It was the nineties, you know? Mm-hmm. So I was, and uh, <laughs> people, people were loving it. And, uh, Yeah. So that was kind of my first experience, but I was hooked. I just thought it was the most,
2: I thought these people were just the most powerful, impressive rock stars I'd ever seen. It was also one of the first times, I guess, in your life that you'd seen people get up and talk about the most intimate and quote unquote flawed parts of themselves and be adored and applauded for it. Which if you are a kid who feels uncomfortable in their skin, I can imagine that that would just seem like a fucking superpower.
3: Yeah. It's just the antithesis of high school, isn't it? It's so I started doing stand up when I was 13 pr- professionally and then dropped out of school when I was 15 to do it full time. And it was definitely that. It was because I'd found this group of people who were, yeah, being applauded for everything that was different and weird. And, you know, in high school, you're kind of just trying to fit in. And yeah, it was great. How was high school for you? Well, oh, it didn't really go very much, Jamila. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You left. Yeah, for- you left at 15. Ah. I mean, even when I was there, I wasn't all there, you know?
2: <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, I know exactly okay. what you mean. I, uh yeah, I had a shitty time at school. I'm not going to bore everyone or you with that. But if anyone's been listening to this podcast for a while, they've heard me moan about the girls at school many, many times I oh, had uh, the shittest time. And really? I guess this industry has felt like school again. And I guess that's kind of what it felt like meeting you was like when you meet someone that you can, that you know you can sit and eat lunch with. It's that, that feeling of, that relief. And I'm sure people still get it when they join a new job. So oh, yeah. fuck, I found someone to spend my lunch break with. Fantastic. You feel like a, an 11 year old all over again.
3: Totally. I mean, in school, it's people that you would often never choose to be <laughs> friends with. It's just circumstance that's brought you there. Yeah. I, um, I I was never bullied or anything. I just was sort of distracted and thinking about comedy and other things. And I just felt this insane kind of claustrophobia being there. And like, I wanted to be out and I thought I wanted to grow
2: up fast, you know, I wanted to Mm -hmm. be partying, partying and. But you did start partying really young, right? Because you, one of the big themes in feel good. I mean, of course we touched on the fact that you are uh, dating a, a, a woman who until this point in her life has always maybe identified as straight. And she's in her first relationship with another woman and, uh, and we go through the complexities of that relationship and her getting accustomed to being in that relationship, her. Uh, I don't want to give too much away from the show for anyone who hasn't seen it, but her difficulty and maybe even like coming out to her friends and introducing your character to the people in her life. We go through all of that, but we also touch on addiction so much, which we briefly spoke about earlier on. And we got derailed by Bette Midler, which is completely fair because she is a queen. I would love to talk a little bit more about that, because I think especially in the last year, addiction came up massively for so many people because Mm. there were no distractions. Some people didn't have access to the thing they were addicted to or some people had too much access and time for the thing they were addicted to. And it's something that my audience write to me around a lot is asking me to talk about addiction because it's something that they're struggling with. And again, we always look at it only as a drug thing. And I know that you were around 16 when you developed a drug addiction.
3: Oh, I think young, uh, a lot younger, I think, but I think, uh, Yeah. We, we often think about addiction as like junkies and gutters and stuff. And, and so people, it's really easy to go, oh, those people have something wrong with them. And I, you know, I can't really relate to that experience, but, um, I think everyone's, most people have had the experience of self-soothing with something that is not great for them. And, you know, it's a cliche to mention it, but like, we are all addicted to our phones so, so much. And, um, yeah, so that I, I think, yeah, I got into drugs really young, and I was hanging out with people who are much much older, and mm-hmm. um, there was a lot of a lot of coke at the time, and in the comedy scene in Toronto, and um,
2: yeah, I just, threw, I mean, how you
3: know, old were trying, you the
2: first time you took coke? Do you mind me asking?
3: I think it was fifteen, just turned fifteen, mm-hmm. but I'd been smoking a lot of weed, and do, you know, but I wonder if I would have found drugs at high school anyway. I mean, I think I did, but it was definitely largely to do with sort of dating older men and trying to impress them, and and that kind of thing. Yeah. I, I'm glad I, I got a lot of that out of my system. And then I went, I went to rehab in my late, late teens. And then, um, yeah. So and it created
2: it, like a friction between you and your parents for a while when you were young.
3: Yeah. I got kicked out when I was about 16 and yeah, we, we're really, really close now. And I've been able to talk about all that stuff, but for a long time, it was very, very fraught. But I think, um, it was in my twenties that I was like, oh, I've beaten drugs and I'm all good and I I hadn't realized that I'd really just transferred that addictive behavior into other aspects of my life like relationships and um, now maybe work like I'm 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 kind of a workaholic but I think I've got a handle on it. I'm I'm self-aware enough now to sort of notice when I'm getting like that about things.
2: Can I ask what you do to be able to manage your addictions?
3: Well, I've In my twenties, I've gone to meetings and, uh, so NA meetings, comedy, uh, just trying to be social and, and connect with lots of people and be, you know, and, and exercise and things like that. But you know, it's a daily thing. I think about drugs maybe every day and that's, I, I wonder if that will ever go away because that would be nice.
2: Yeah. I, I don't know. I wonder, I think I feel the same way about my eating disorder and that, like, I know I've kind of definitely got a full hand on it, like handle on it. And I think I've controlled it, but I, but those, those thoughts, those triggers exist all around me constantly. And I massively commend you for being able to fight addiction when in such a drug fueled industry as ours. I don't know how the fuck you've managed to do it. It's the same thing with an eating disorder. It's so hard for me to maintain my hold over, no, I'm still going to eat the fucking pizza even if yeah. I have a fitting this week, even if I yeah. have a photo shoot this week, even if I, you know, and, and the normalization of the the eating disordered language around me, because all of these actresses, all of these models, are all on the fucking craziest diets you've ever heard yeah. to be able to achieve these bodies that they then go and Photoshop to look even more insane online. All you hear about is normalized diet culture or if you're eating a cake, people feel the need to comment on you. So I find it a real, it's been a real journey learning how to control that. Yeah, that evil voice in my head telling me to jump back in. Oh I don't, God, know, how, I could, yeah. I don't know how you've done it with addiction in comedy because it's it is just
3: well, it's is you know it's better than it was. And I also have uh, really geeky friends, and I just am, I'm really they're really sweet and protective, so that's helpful. I have a good like sort of support network. But um yeah, I mean check in with me in a year and see. <laughs> yeah. it's, it is no, it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important. I think
2: I spoke about this briefly with Demi Lovato when she was on this podcast. I'll Just drop that name. I'll pick it back up, don't worry, um, <laughs> But uh, we, um, she talked about the fact that, you know, it's like an ongoing process. Like you just don't know where you're going to be. And I think it's really important that people don't hold you to a certain expectation. They just wish the best for you because it's something that you're battling all of the time. What was your yeah. addiction to, do you mind talking about what your addiction to relationships was like? Yeah,
3: that's sort of uh, the the main arc of the show is, yeah. is this is, you know, that where, where love and addiction intercepts and, mm-hmm. and those things. And I think a lot of people have had the experience of being in a relationship with someone who you're really viscerally drawn to and attracted to, but they sort of turn you into this kind of paranoid, obsessive texting. Like it, it just is very unstable and destabilizing and roller coastery. And, um, so I think I spent a good chunk of my twenties in, relationships like that where you just, yeah, I wonder what that's about. Maybe it's when you get in those cycles with someone who, where the relationship is creating this huge anxiety and you're always in some drama, but then, then periodically it, it's soothed because, you know, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. it becomes quite toxic and, and intoxicating if someone's, uh, making you feel destabilized and then being like, nah, come here, it's all good. I love you.
2: And then pushing that's, you away again, pulling you back oh, in, pushing you away it's, again.
3: It, To be honest, it's very appealing and very, it's like, (laughs) I mean, to me, it sounds like fucking hell. It's hell. I think I now am a lot more, I don't think I'll ever be in a relationship like that again, but, um, I still do feel drawn to that kind of excitement for sure. But I, I definitely want stability. Yeah.
2: It's it's the discomfort and it's also the addiction to shame. I think I had a really big Mm. addiction to shame for a lot of my life. I've been an addict my whole life. Like I'm addicted to different things. The only reason I've never been addicted to hard drugs is because I've never tried hard drugs, Mm. but I know I would be the reason. I I definitely can't. Like I can't have cough syrup more than twice in one week. Otherwise it's a slippery slope into like, I'm just like, I, Lil Wayne is so deep inside my persona. Like he's like, he's in, (laughs) he's in there. Like he's in my soul. I am Lil Wayne uh, deep down and I know that. And so I have to be so careful with substances I take. You know, I was addicted to Valium between the age of 11 and 21 and it's not an addictive substance. It's not the substance I was addicted to. It's the feeling I was addicted to. I was addicted to the shame of overeating, you know, and the way that that would make me feel uh, and so I, 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 think it's really important to, to talk about it being able to shape shift so quickly and so easily and so sneakily yeah, so that people can help identify it.
3: Yeah. Uh, there's this, um, oh God. Okay. I think it's Emily Dickinson. This is so pretentious. I'm dropping a poem here. It's fine. But I dropped, I dropped like
2: Demi Bartos D- yeah, as, Bato as you can drop Emily Dickinson.
3: I remember reading this and it probably wasn't even her. It was probably Sylvia Plath or something, but it was, Kesha. Um, it was probably Kesha. Yeah. Uh, it, and the quote was, uh, when the skeleton of habit alone upholds the human frame. And it really stuck. Okay, me wait, let me
2: stop. Stop. Let me take that in. Say it again slower. Cause I'm a bit thick.
3: When the skeleton of habit alone upholds the human frame. So <gasps> it just made me think about when you are doing things on a kind of rote and, un- Unthinking level, and you're just getting up and doing these these habits, and you sort of become this robotic skeleton. That's what I thought of. So I never want to be that, just doing things because I am f- compelled to.
2: I always want to be making the choice. And do you do so you think you're still kind of do you do you have you still go to meetings and stuff? Yeah, I haven't
3: in I haven't this year in lockdown because I find the online ones quite stressful. I tried a few, and uh, are
2: yeah. they on camera?
3: Uh, You can, you can have your camera off, but it's, yeah, I don't know. I want to be back in a room with people. Yeah, I do. I do find them helpful, but I'm not like a 12, like I still drink occasionally and I'm Mm not, I'm, I've, I'm about, um, what's it called? I've gone blank. That's all right. Harm uh, harm reduction. Yeah. I follow a harm reduction model. That was the the rehab center. Well, it's just kind of. (laughs) kind of less intense than the 12-step program I (laughs) think yeah yeah. do you still have a sponsor for that I don't have a sponsor okay yeah I'm just I'm I'm, I think it works for so many people the 12-step program but I'm I'm wary of and and I do go to those meetings and I take a lot from them and I just I just don't take all of it because I find it I'm wary of like constantly saying out loud I'm an addict I'm an addict and reinforcing you know
2: yeah. I think it's a very individual thing. I think everyone's addiction takes place in different ways for different reasons. And I think everyone's coping mechanism is different. It's the same thing with eating disorders. Definitely.
3: And there, there's things I would never touch again. and But yeah, I feel yeah. able to have a drink once
2: in a while. Yeah. And that's fine. And that's great. And it's also fluid and transient and, and it's no one else's business. And I probably shouldn't have asked. I was just curious <laughs> because I wanted to know what those meetings are like i've never been to one and i i really wish i had throughout my 20s cuz because i had because i was so high functioning no one could spot that i and also because you can so easily put a label on a lot of the things that i had like oh that's an eating disorder or that's obsessive compulsive disorder or that's or she's got a binge purge disorder which again no one even knew about yeah but, but because there were simple labels that i could web md and put on myself. I didn't realize that the underlying through, the through line of my life is that I'm addicted to shame. I'm addicted to to discomfort. I'm I'm addicted, which I think is why now I make a whole podcast and an Instagram account and a whole big mess of myself online, just obsessively (laughs) trying to divorce myself from shame because it's been the underlying dictator in my life.
3: Yeah. And I think, Openness, which then leads to human connection, is is the only real solution, I think. And I think that's what those rooms and meetings are about as well. It's just hearing hearing people people from totally different backgrounds and lives, and they're saying things that you've literally written in your diary that morning. Like, ever you know, people having the same feelings is so cathartic, I think, and and connecting
0: with people. You like to watch new stuff, right? Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know
3: about
1: this juicy gem
0: of a detour.
2: I think it's amazing, and I think you're doing amazingly, and, and I... And I really honor your commitment to continuing to just keep an eye on it and see where your addiction has shape shifted to. And I love the fact that you're putting it into your art. Will you tell us about when <laughs> Feel Good Season 2 starts?
3: Feel Good 2 comes out June 4th. Oh my God!
2: So soon? Yeah, yeah.
3: I'm absolutely terrified and so excited for people to see it. It's by the way, I feel like we've talked about all these heavy things. I just want to reiterate: Feel good's a comedy. It's got (laughs) it's got Lisa Kudrow. It's very silly as well, and yeah. You
2: and I were talking about that on the phone. That those two little shits that used to just go and find different places that we could both go and eat chips at, because I think you were vegan at the time were you vegan maybe maybe I think for a you week. were vegan at the time and I was uh gluten-free so the thing that we could always agree on sharing together as food was just chips we would oh, eat man. hot chips wherever we would go that was our thing hot Hot chips chips. yeah (laughs) and uh and to think that those two little shits walking around edinburgh sharing hot chips uh have both grown up to be able to act with lisa kudrow at some point what a weird what a weird degree of separation That is so surreal yeah she's such a legend and hero of mine i can't believe she was in your show what the fuck did that feel like standing opposite her for the first time in a show that you wrote
3: bizarre, bizarre. And, and we wrote it with her in mind, but only because it's easier to write with someone in mind. We never, we weren't planning on sending her the scripts or anything because we were like, how humiliating she won't read them. And then someone said, just send them on, you know, why not? And she got back in touch right away. I couldn't believe it. It blew my mind. And it's like, I mean, Friends is like the Star Wars of, of comedy. It's just part of the cultural landscape. It's woven into who I am. I know the rhythms of it so well. Like I remember her cracking up during a take. And hearing the laugh that I've heard on Friends bloopers that I've watched on YouTube just to cheer myself up. Like, is it regularly. the one
2: where, wait, because I watch Friends bloopers a lot as well because I'm I'm so obsessed with Lisa Kudrow. Uh, is it where Ross is playing the bagpipes? Oh, the best. And she starts <laughs> fucking, she's trying to sing and Jennifer Aniston starts losing her shit with laughter in the background. And then so, so does Phoebe, so does Lisa Kudrow. But did you so say good. that you, you heard that laugh on set? Yeah. Hearing that laugh and being like, oh my God,
3: that's the blooper laugh. And now I have a blooper with, with me and Lisa Kudrow. It's heaven.
2: (laughs) What could be better? Yeah. I, um, because I worked with her just after you did, she, uh, she gave me a glowing review of working with you and how curious she was to see how the show would turn out and how excited she was about it. And she does practically nothing. She attaches yeah. herself almost to nothing. So go us for getting yeah. to work with the queen that is Lisa Goodrow. Oh, I know. Um, can you tell us anything about this season that you want us to know in particular, other than the fact that it is funny? I promise everyone it's really, really funny and so full of heart. And I learned so much. And it is genuinely, like genuinely, genuinely, genuinely one of my favourite comedies I think I've ever seen.
3: Thank you. Um, I guess, you know, Because we always knew it was just going to be two seasons. So if you're just coming to it now, what you've got is like a complete love story that's told in 12 episodes. And uh, I think it's quite juicy, you know? I'm into the second season. I think the first season was these two chaotic characters in this quite toxic relationship. And the second season, they're kind of having to figure out how they can be individuals within that relationship and figuring out if they can transform the toxicity into something slightly more uh tenable but there's lots of fit stuff in it and I think it's fun <laughs> fit is in sexy yeah it's yeah yeah it's <laughs> and
2: uh you know lots of tears lots of laughs lots of fit stuff Okay, great. I can't wait. I can't wait for more people to watch this show. I was so annoyed and so grateful at the same time that it came out during a pandemic because I wanted even more people to hear about it. But loads of people did and it was so well-reviewed and I'm so fucking proud of you and everything you do is well-reviewed. And I'm just, I'm in awe of you. I think I'm in love with you. (laughs) Thank you, I'm in love with you, May. I got you here on this podcast to tell you today. (laughs) Um, Does it feel feel amazing to have so, like there's so much of you and I guess you say it's you 10 years ago that was in feel good does it feel cathartic to have you know stand up is only it's half an hour to an hour in which you get to tell so many different stories it's so rare that you ever get the chance in life even as an entertainer to really tell the fullest story of how you feel or who you Uh -uh. are and i know that it's like half truth half creation but has it been cathartic to be able to like fully realize the version of yourself that you wanted to tell
3: yeah, I think I can't overstate what it like, what a dream come true. Yeah. And and also growing up, like just desperate to be the leading man and get the girl and to make this <laughs> fantasy, fantasy version where I get to pretend to be, you know, it, the, the hero of a story. It was just incredibly thrilling. And I think everybody walks around with all kinds of these, of things going on in their head and carrying various shames and you know, traumas and issues. And if you never see yourself reflected on screen, you can feel really alienated. And growing up, I just didn't, I didn't see the type of sex I was having on screen. I didn't see people that looked like me, except maybe Ellen or... Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, and so, Ellen and you, you're the same. You're exactly the same.
3: i <laughs> What are you complaining about? <laughs> literally this morning when I went to get my coffee, the woman went, oh, I thought it was a young Ellen walking towards me. It's like the people... T- <laughs> yeah. So... Yeah, so it was incredibly cathartic to be like, "Oh, I'm going to be
2: heard in that way." You know, I think I wish that I could travel back in time and do many things. I don't think this would be the priority on the list if I could <laughs> yes, travel back in yeah, time. Yeah. Um, but I wish I could have shown feel good to an eleven year old May uh, oh and also an eleven year old me. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I think we both could have really done with a show like that. And I think it's, I think it's going to really move and. Uh, change the feelings of a lot of young people who get to watch that show and so uh, yeah before I end up crying at you thanks for (laughs) making it because it's fucking brilliant and I'm so excited to see what you continue to do next and thank you for coming on and talking to me about so many personal things we did get in some deeper dark places but I feel like it was all handled with a fair amount of lightness and sensitivity and mutual exception yeah Um, May Martin before you leave will you please tell me what do you weigh?
3: I weigh my resilience. Uh, I weigh my uh, recent cooking skills. Uh, I can make a lasagna from scratch. Oh, sure. Yeah, that's a lockdown thing. That's our I first weigh... date when I get back. Yeah, sounds good. I weigh my friends mm-hmm. that I really cherish and, and uh Want to always make so much time for. That's my main thing. I'm very romantic about my friends.
2: I think that's lovely. And I also, I hope that that continues to be the main vein of your life because I think that's the thing that keeps you the most sane in this business. I think that's what has kept both of us sane in this business. Even though we have risen to the heights of working with Lisa Kudrow, we've still stayed (laughs) grounded. And I think that's amazing. No, Um, (laughs) shocking. Yeah, I'm really thrilled. And I'm, very lucky to be able to call myself one of your friends. We're going to talk more often than we do. This has been ridiculous. Yes. Yeah, um, we have. Yeah, we shouldn't have to book each other to have a chat. This is. I know it out shouldn't have to go through our <laughs> yeah. go through our people.
3: Um, <laughs> going it's, go so, it um, it's so good to see you though, and yeah, I want to just reiterate how impressed I am by everything you're
2: doing. Uh, likewise, I love you loads, and uh, I'll call you for a gossip later this week. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I weigh with Jamila Jamil is produced and researched by myself, Jamila Jamil, Erin Finnegan, and Kimmy Gregory. It is edited by Andrew Carson, and the beautiful music that you're hearing now is made by my boyfriend, James Blake. If you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. It's a great way to show your support. I really appreciate it, and it amps me up to bring on better and better guests. Lastly, at IWay, we would love to hear from you and share what you weigh at the end of this podcast. You can leave us a voicemail at 1-818-660-5543 or email us what you weigh at iweighpodcast at gmail.com. It's not in pounds and kilos, so please don't send that. It's all about your just you you know, you've been on the Instagram. Anyway. And now we would love to pass the mic to one of our listeners.
1: IWay. Having a loving and supporting family. I wait being a psychotherapist and a professional dancer. I wait being grateful always. And I wait being kind and loving to others.